0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Last Sunday, Grace hosted a live event called Hearing the Music where maestro Delta David Geyer, the music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, joined me to talk about the beauty and theology of Bach's St. Matthew Passion. David joined us two episodes ago to discuss the program, and now it's already happened. But if you're listening to this episode on its release date, there may still be time to get tickets to the symphony's April 2nd performance. I urge you to do that. Now, Cameron and I are going to unpack the discussion and then travel down a rabbit trail that David introduced during the talk. We'll explore some questions about the role of music in church and how Bach's example can inspire us to value music and musicians more. Over the weekend, Grace hosted a special event called Hearing the Music. If you're a regular listener to the commentary, you know that a couple of episodes ago, my guest was Delta David Geyer, the maestro of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, and David and I, together at Grace, unpacked Box St. Matthew Passion. We talked about the music, and we also talked about the message as well for an audience that was... I guess a combination of people from Grace, people from the community, people from the chorus, uh, all interested in unpacking that work and being able to better appreciate it. So this is a little bit of an after-action report. Uh, Cameron was there for the event, and I was there as well because I was uh, doing some of the talking, and so we thought it'd be interesting just to report back on on what happened and, and how it went. So uh, Cameron, it took a little under two hours for us to, to make it through. And we played music from the event. We talked through some of the libretto. Uh, what were some of the things that struck you as interesting about the experience?
1: Well, it was the first thing that really stood out to me was the fact that we're in the middle of Lent, actually. And, and it occurred to me kind of while i was sitting there like ah this is perfect you know the, the timing of this event is is really great from a devotional perspective to prepare us for for the passion and for easter and obviously that's intentional on the symphony's part but just something i hadn't really thought about until until i was there otherwise i think having this this kind of side by side Listening to the music, which I had done a little bit before, but not you know not in depth, and getting a commentary both theological and, and musical, was just so helpful and both in terms of the meaning of the words, which obviously I can't understand on my own, because they're in German, and kind of the, the way that Bach. Literally composed the you know the, uh, the arrangement to
0: meet the message, to, to
1: work with the words. Yeah, I think that was the coolest thing for
0: me. Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking about that a lot, and I think that uh, you and I both, as as writers, have maybe a particular reason to be intrigued by that. Uh, and, and certainly you as a poet can appreciate the fact that Bach is taking poetic works. Uh, he had uh, in his circle men who wrote poetry on these themes or had access to, uh, I guess the technical word is libretto, although it seems a little strange to, to use that in reference to to a sacred work, at least in my ears. And Bach was repurposing or or putting together this material in a way, juxtaposing it with the scriptural text. So that that poetry becomes a kind of commentary on the Bible and in a way helps us enter into the story and, and and apply it to ourselves. And so for me, the process of talking through it like that, uh, you know, it really helps me kind of draw some devotional lessons from the work. Yeah, um, you know, I... I had originally thought that the words were
1: just verbatim, like scriptural text. I had no idea that there was this commentary going on, nor did I know that Bach was working with these other writers. I thought maybe he wrote this or, you know, or I, I guess I had no clue. I'd never really thought about that. So that was another thing that was, it was just so fascinating to see that it was a collective work. And it, like you said, is, is truly a devotional work, which is something I've overlooked.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to host an event like this at Grace because, you know, sometimes you get excited about something and you want to share it, but you're not quite sure how <laughs> to to widen that circle. And one of my desires has always been to widen the circle of appreciation where sacred music is concerned because this is a beautiful inheritance, a heritage That the Christian tradition has to hand down to us. And there is a little bit of a learning curve. As with so many good things, it takes a little bit of explaining to understand. You know, I think about that in relation to the Westminster Confession. Mm -hmm. You know, in Sunday school, we look at the Westminster Confession in adult Sunday school and unpack it line by line, but it needs a little explaining. (laughs) It's not always to 21st century years immediately obvious what the points are, but once you talk through it, yeah. uh, it suddenly comes alive and you recognize that this is a wonderful thing to have in yeah. your life of faith. And I think this is the same kind of thing. And in fact, uh, it, it may sound like it's hyperbole, but, but honestly, I, I think the, the music, in particular, this kind of sacred music, that's written for worship and is designed for worship services it preaches you know we we joke about um bach as the fifth evangelist but we had this moment during the event where david made the point that there was an intermission and and this is this is where originally a pastor would have gotten up and delivered a, a sermon mm-hmm. and so I jokingly popped out of my chair and said hey I'll do that right now and and to the collective groan from from the audience um the cool thing is though I don't I don't feel as if that work needs a sermon because it is one mm-hmm. you know I mean it really does convey the gospel in profound depth and so that was the experience that i was hoping that that people could come away with is is recognizing that this thing that you thought was just a piece of i don't know like highbrow art music is actually this this just you know uh goosebump inducing work of devotional fire yeah it was another
1: one of the points that i I appreciate it so much because i I think my view honestly before this event you know i i knew I knew that Bach was a christian, I knew that he was you know he was writing within kind of this church context, but I had never thought about his works as more than concert pieces right like you had sort of mentioned at the beginning you know this is this is music you go to the symphony to to listen to to experience and and hearing this new perspective though that this is something that was made within the church but for the church and still exists for us as christians is is really a gift so i think you're right though that we probably need to do some work to widen the circle of appreciation because well i don't it's not to say that it's it's difficult per se but that maybe fewer people are as familiar with that kind of that music or, or art in general
0: yeah, and I think there's, there's kind of a general default setting that we have where we just immediately dismiss certain things as like, not for me. You know, mm-hmm. Maybe this is above my head or something like that. We imagine that there's a, a greater complexity than there truly is. Uh, when the reality is with a little bit of knowledge, you can go deep in appreciation. Now, I think like, like every great work of art, the St. Matthew Passion is probably inexhaustible in, in terms of just uh, reflection and meditation. So it's, it's not like you're going to sort of get to the bottom of it. However, I think after an experience like we had over the weekend, with that equipping, you can then go to the work and, and really your eyes are opened. You know, you're, you're able to see it with a completely different lens and, and able to see like, this is for me, you know, this was written for me. This was written for my people, you know, like this is our inheritance of worship and I shouldn't exclude myself from it just because it takes a little bit of effort Mm -hmm. to appreciate. And so I think that's, that's the, if I were, going to describe like my dream for grace as a church it would be that we would be more fearless in owning and rediscovering all of these riches that the church has a tendency just to put back on the shelf and not touch hmm. or to to hand over and and let other people worry about keeping this stuff alive you know we talked about that dynamic at the event as well that um You know, there's a part of me that laments the fact that this music is only kept alive in the concert hall, Uh, oftentimes by people who don't believe in the truth of the words that are contained in it. Not always, but, but often. And yet, I have to be grateful for that, because I also recognize that if it was up to the church as a whole to preserve these things, I'm not sure that they would be preserved. And so as someone who had that experience of like rediscovering a theology that had not been passed down to me and and being so excited about it and so determined not to let it fall through the cracks, I have a similar feeling about this as well. There's a legacy of worship that we are in peril of losing that's not the reason to claim it. Just to keep it from being lost. The <laughs> right. reason to claim it is because it's wonderful, and it will completely open your heart in ways that um, I'm not sure anything else can. But step by step, you know, and I think we as a community, step by step, are widening that circle a little more mm-hmm. each time. But this is part of my dream for the kind of church that that we are becoming.
2: I'm
1: curious how you you get someone to take the first step, because I think I'm with you. and I, I, I would love to see this come to life as well. And yet I know not everyone is on board, you know, wants to be on board. And I'm just speaking generally. I don't sure, have anyone sure. in mind. I'm just I know people who never want to listen to classical music, don't right. want to read poetry. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know plenty of those people. Yeah. Um, you know, or just like the arts in general. Just not all that interested. What? You know, how? How do you get them to take that first step or or see the interest as it relates to them?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'll say at the outset that that there, there is no way to bring everybody along, right. and that it's not illegitimate for people to have you know s- some aptitudes and not others, right. right? So it's uh it's not a question of me saying, you know, oh, you're listening to the wrong music. You must now start listening to the right music <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. And, and of course, some people are, are differently brained and, and connect in different ways. However, I think some of those barriers tend to be exaggerated. You know, I think that we, we grow up and we, we get a lot of, I don't know, we, we, we write certain things off. We see ourselves as more limited than we are. And sometimes it's just a question of taking a step with your community, experiencing something that's, that maybe you never would have chosen on your own, but because it's something that, that we're doing together, you're open to seeing what it's all about. And so I I, I never want to guilt people into doing things or motivate negatively. You know, I, th- I think that it's it's too easy to do that. Of course, it's very effective to do that, but it has consequences mm-hmm. and it changes the way that you see whatever it is someone's trying to get you to do. And I was a an English major in school and I saw that the way that English was taught often inoculated people against literature. You know, if you had to take literature classes in school the way that they were done you were sort of relieved when you no longer had to take them and you would never willingly go back into the cauldron and so i think it's important that you you do wonderful things in wonderful ways and not use you know obligation and duty as your your only argument so to me this is this is just another beautiful thing that is a part of our faith that is yours to enjoy, that can enrich your life, and, and I think is especially worth taking a chance on for people who are longing for that beauty and that transcendence and not yet finding it. Now, you may end up finding it in unexpected ways, that being introduced to music like this, being introduced to the idea of experiencing it together might be the thing that unlocks... A, a higher level of devotional life than you've experienced so far. And so I think that's, that's really my goal. And I, I, it's not important to me that everybody be on the same page on, on much of anything. Right. But I do like to see more and more people coming to realize, hey, this is, this is great and this could be part of who we are. So with that in mind, I do want to talk about one little note that was sounded at the events and David described it as a rabbit trail. You know, he kind of went off on a on a side tangent, but I think it's a good one and I think it's one that we as a church could benefit from reflecting on. And it has to do with the role of music in the life of the church. So Let's take a moment and hear what David had to say, and then we'll come back and unpack it a little bit.
2: Leipzig, Germany in 1720 might have been a city of 20,000 people, maybe. And yet they had, it's not just about Bach. Bach is probably the greatest musician, certainly the greatest composer of music that ever lived. This may be his greatest work. The investment of the church, of the society, in art was huge. Bach wrote a different cantata, which is a much smaller version of this, for every single Sunday. Every one, a different cantata, of different choruses, different solos, different orchestra, for every single Sunday. And he was hired to do so. And he was given a budget for musicians to do so. And it wasn't just Leipzig. It was all over. So the understanding of the value of art in worship, it was was a totally different thing from how we think of it today. Um, And this is universal across the church. I mean, there are individual churches that do, you know, marvelous things. But in general, the, the idea of art, be it visual or musical or whatever, is integral to the worship experience rather than a, a warm-up act for the sermon. It, it's, it's striking when you come to a work like this, the commitment. And Bach didn't write his own lyrics, right? These words were not written by Bach. They were written by, by poets poets. And theologians, and they were approved by the church. They were overseen. Like so, there was nobody just writing tunes and putting lyrics to them, and and getting them out there and them being used in worship. It's much more intentional. You know, people people will say to me, "Oh, David, you just want us to do Bach in church again." I mean, not that that would be a bad thing, but that's not what what I would I would dream of. Pray. For, is that the church might recapture this kind of concept. Like, who are the box today? The ones that we'll never hear, the ones we haven't heard for the last 100 years, at least, because we're not invested in worship. What's the music that was never composed, the art that was never created? Because the church, again, universal, has pretty much abdicated its responsibility over the last 100 years.
1: So I think the one word that stands out to me from what David just said more than anything else is that word investment. He's talking about the church historically and today investing in art. Use that word too, you know, not just production per se, but, but art and I think he's obviously right that there is a vast difference between what was going on when Bach was alive and what's going on today. And I honestly don't know why things have changed. And maybe, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but I'm not sure what has changed in the mind of the church to see that to no longer see art as a, a worthy investment of our, of our resources. So maybe we can start there. Do you have any thoughts?
0: Well, I like the contrast that you made between art and production. Yeah. Because, again, speaking broadly of, let's say, the evangelical church, I think a lot of money and effort does go into production. Yeah, that's true. And when you see the, the scale of the show that is put on in a lot of big churches. Clearly, you know, effort is is made and it's not unusual to encounter people whose job, like full-time work, is something like video production for, the, for a church. Uh, so clearly resources go into mm. a lot of this and it does, I think beg the question, what might be possible if instead of production, we were centering creativity and in art in, mm. in that sense, you know, that, that, yeah. that there was something more to what we were investing in. Um, I think part of it has to do with a change in the way we perceive worship, what the purpose of worship is, but I think there are also probably big um, cultural factors that play into that as well. So I think about this when you think through the the, the history of you know quote unquote seeker sensitive Christianity, or or even going behind that, the origins of um, like evangelistic tent meetings, for example. If you read a book like Charles Sheldon's In His Steps, the whole idea is that the Christians leave the church behind with its dead liturgical worship, and they go out into the public, they throw tent meetings, they want to gather crowds, and essentially they, they have, you know, half the service is music, half the service is evangelistic preaching. And in order to draw the crowd in, in the book, they get a talented opera singer to come and sing, and then that draws people in. And so you can see in you know the late 1800s, early 1900s, this new way of thinking of what the church should be emerging. And as it emerges, I think the role of the arts in worship begins to change as well. And so we start thinking more in terms of um, how to appeal to people outside the church than we do thinking of something like maybe would be closer to Boxhart, how to glorify God mm. in some ultimate way. Mm. You could probably, you know, peel that onion, you know, to so many different yeah. layers to that, but But fundamentally, I I think it's a shift in what we value and consequently what we're willing to invest in. There's a case to be made, I think, that if you're a church like us, which is already turning its back on a lot of that way of doing worship, uh, there is no show production is really not a focus of ours. It's, it's liturgy. It's not a question of performing quote unquote worship as much as experiencing it together. Uh, Maybe you open a possibility on a small scale to try to replicate something more akin to that experience that went before obviously in a smaller more intimate scale but but still something in spirit i would hope that could draw inspiration from those great models of collaboration in the past i mean you you can see this in in one area in our worship in the way that we do psalms where we have a psalm refrain that's always part of our worship that uses the text of a psalm but we set some aspect of it to music that can be sung as the psalm is being read, and many of those refrains are original musical compositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written quite a few, Cameron. Uh, I even I did one, uh, although I had to have a lot of help to do mine. But again, like I, I would never. You know, hold that up side by side with you know a, a Bach cantata and say this is the same thing, right. but you can at least see where there's there's a a desire to recapture that sense of the congregation using its creative gifts in order to glorify God, and not think about I don't know that that other production heavy. Right approach to things
1: yeah no that's that's all very helpful i think what you said at first seems true that there is still an investment by the church in music let's say but it's it's the question of is is that music a production a show or is it truly contributing to the worship of the church because i you know we both know plenty of musicians or churches who spend a lot of time and money trying to get really great talent, you know, great great sounding popular music or something. Um, so that I guess that's one question. I don't I don't wanna be the sort of person that disses all contemporary music right. either. So right. I know that that's not what you're doing, but I think where I feel like a sense of intimidation here as somebody who yeah. leads worship is like, <laughs> so do I need to start writing cantatas? You know, I right. can't do that, obviously. So the question of scale is interesting. Now, now, too. don't, don't
0: <laughs> rule out anything. <laughs>
1: yeah. the The question of scale is important because, you know, I don't believe anyone at Grace probably right now at our church could... I mean, few people in the world ever could pull off what Bach did. And yet, taking as a model, this, you know, the church community investing in its creative members to use their gifts to share them with the world. I mean, that's kind of baked into what Grace is doing already. So surely it's something to aspire to. I guess I'm I I don't have all the answers as to what that would look like for for a church today. I don't necessarily think it means reverting to a certain style of music. Even. Sure,
0: maybe maybe it does, but I think in terms of musical styles, I I like to be agnostic. Yeah, you know, I I think that there's a uh, there's an important principle I as a pastor try to keep in mind, which is. I want to make best use of the resources that God has brought into our community. And so a part of that is, is taking the, the abilities and the interests of the people that God has gathered together and in, in trying to figure out a way to channel it in a way that glorifies him mm-hmm. and deepens everyone's understanding of him and i think part of that has to be aspirational as well that that we have to aspire to grow along these lines we we want to do things as well as we can do them and we also want to do them even better than we can do them now as we progress you know as god sort of guides us we want to be open to that but it's important like even if if you're not bach and even if you can't write a cantata for next sunday <laughs> i think just having an orientation towards using creative gifts to glorify God and valuing those contributions is really important. There's a a, a second reason why I like the idea of being agnostic in terms of musical style, which is that um, if you focus on let's say what whatever's on christian radio like like if if you're just focused on where is the popular taste at the moment then by definition you lose the vast majority of the sacred music that that exists in the world right because it was not designed to be played on on those instruments or sung in that way whatever mm-hmm. to an extent some of that can be brought in you know i think one of the, the things i love in our worship is taking you know the words to old hymns and setting them to new music because it's one of those activities that to me speaks so much of who we are you know as 21st century people but living an ancient theology as best we can so it's not a question of, of like musical style. It's not a worship wars kind of conversation in my mind. It's, it's much more about taking something that has been done in an unintentional way and making it intentional in the same way we would approach liturgy. Hmm. Right. And, and kind of thinking through things that way. There's a, a a second question, which has to do, I think, and, and David could speak more to this with cultivating and appreciating the artists themselves in ways that that help them not only develop spiritually but also have avenues for using their gifts. And so a small church like ours we have, you know, limited resources, but it's one of the things that we aspire to and and to the extent that we can, we we try to do um, because we want to be able to use the creative gifts that God has brought into our midst in order to honor Him. And, And there's just something about, you know, the efforts that we've made that to me have an ongoing value. You know, to think that in the summer of 2020 you took some words from a psalm and set them to music and that two years later we're singing that song people who weren't there when it happens have now sort of had an experience it's become one of their psalms mm-hmm. as a result of that work yeah. and 10 years from now we'll still be doing that uh, there is something beautiful about that, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a weird way, as much as I would like to think that, that a sermon that I preach today, 10 years from now might somehow be, you know, <laughs> listened to and whatever, you know, podcasts are 10 years from now and, and continue to do that work. There's a way in which musically the the music that we create, I think has the most opportunity to do that. Mm. You know, we're still listening to the St. Matthew passion, but we don't know what sermon was preached and, and don't have that text there. And and it's not still speaking to us in the same way. So there's just something to be said for that. Yeah. It's so different than pulling
1: the top five songs off of the, you know, the top 10 charts, Christian music charts or whatever, because well, for everything that we've just said, it's so different from that. There's something about creating it that, that makes it more our own. But it brings up another question, which gets to what you were just saying about the congregation coming around or the church coming around, the musicians and, and helping them. That's different too than how things are done today. And it wouldn't be an ep- episode of the commentary if we didn't talk about consumerism. So sure. Let's sure. talk about consumerism. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm, we I'm need thinking,
0: consumerism theme music. <laughs> yeah, here it
1: and... comes. I'm just thinking man the way america at large does church is you show up and you enjoy the production and you leave and the congregation is not really invested in in the worship they they have an experience of it or something and maybe you enjoy the songs and maybe you didn't but even you know growing up this is how it was i i either liked it or I, I didn't, but I, I didn't feel that I had any skin in the game, so to speak. I wasn't invested myself in the worship that was going on. I was just consuming it. And how different it would be if the church felt that they were a part of this thing too, whether they were joining the, the worship team or helping write a song or maybe you know some other means of investing. I think that's that's really great. And then you... This gets back to the beginning of our conversation. Then you have a, a culture, which can which can do something. I think you can really start to create something out of out of a culture. But that I mean that's a lot of work. But yeah, I think what you said about aspiring is important.
0: Well, it's a lot of work, but it's also I think the right kind of work that that a, a building a culture of worship is what a church ought to be about. Yeah. Because that's what making disciples is. Right. So a, a culture that's centered on worship is making disciples in a thousand different ways. And never perfectly, but in that imperfect and, and broken and haphazard sometimes process, that's, that's what God uses to grow us up in the faith. And so if you think about music, I think it is a good example of that larger process where there's a sense in which nothing that we do will measure up to, let's say some glorious standard of of the St. Matthew (laughs) Passion, And yet we can be inspired by that to take everything that we do more seriously and to invest love in it and to believe that it matters to glorify God with everything that we have. And that that effort isn't wasted. And to me, if that's the lesson that that we learn from something like this, we've learned something really valuable. The reality is that, that, you know, a humble congregation in the early 1700s gave birth to a work like this that has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. And whatever advantages or disadvantages we may have in common with them or or the things we don't have in common with them, whatever, set all that aside and and just think in terms of, you know, what would it be like if we were committed to the idea of glorifying God and, and making beauty in the presence of God day in and day out? And if that was our value system, how much would that change everything? We wouldn't be an audience. We wouldn't be spectators. We'd be worshipers. We wouldn't be critics. We wouldn't be sitting in the seat listening to whether or not it's as good as what we heard on the radio or in the concert hall. Mm -hmm. We would be worshiping. And I think that's what we aspire to. And my hope is that a little taste of something like this can help kindle the vision for becoming a church that's not trying to do what everybody else is doing, but is, is getting off that wheel of performance and is focusing on real worship. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit org.